Last time we tried to do this, he wasn't here. But uh, Dennis, thank you for loaning us your place. So. So here's our kind of our plan. Um, I'm going to go a little bit quicker for this third session. We want to have just kind of a time of discussion and a little bit of Q&A if you, if you want to do that, um, kind of on these topics, not just anything in general, but, but related to what we've talked about today. And um, then we'll have a brief time of prayer because I think that's what will nail the nails home is um, we're on the mountain now. The trick is to take the application of this down uh, to our lives. So, um, again, Watson loves lists, and we're going to start right off here. Uh, he loves uh, to kind of outline things. And the last five pictures of godly manliness, number one, a godly man is a heavenly man. He's a heavenly man. Watson said this, Heaven for the godly man is before he is in heaven. This is the place to which he aspires. Every day is ascension day with a believer. I love that. Heaven for the godly man is before he is in heaven. It's not something you think about just on your deathbed. It's something you're contemplating all the time. And he gave six ways a godly man is heavenly. We'll do five of them. But the five we'll do is, first of all, he's heavenly in his election. Now, this is one of those times when a guy in 1666 uses a word differently than we do. He's not talking about the doctrine of election. He's not talking about the idea that God chooses those who will be saved. But he's talking about election in terms of the things we elect to do. That he says every morning you wake up and you hold an election. You decide I'm going to do one, two, and three today. He says a godly person chooses to do the things that are edifying to him and glorifying to Christ. Um, Puritans were really big on not wasting time. Uh, they, they weren't one to, if, if they had lived in today's age, they would be driven crazy by, by Netflix and Amazon and video games. Um, you know, we have liberty and Christ issues there. But they would say, yeah, it might not be a sin, but why waste the time? They were super staunch about that. Watson said this, when Christ and the world come into competition and we part with the world to keep Christ and a good conscience, that is a sign that we have chosen the better part, which is referring to Luke 10, 42, when Jesus said one thing is necessary, Mary has chosen the better part. In other words, chosen to sit at the feet of Christ. So in his election, what he elects to do, another way that a godly man is heavenly, in his disposition, his disposition, and this is another word we don't use a lot, he means by disposition what we think about, what we put in our minds. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. Watson says, he looks upon the world, I love this, he looks upon the world as but a beautiful prison, and he cannot be much in love with his chains, though they are made with gold. That's a, that's a wonderful thought. It is a beautiful prison. Third way a godly man is heavenly, in his communication. In his communication, Colossians 3, or 4, 6 rather, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you know how to answer every person. And Watson says that a godly man speaks in such a heavenly manner as if he were already in heaven. Now, the sin that every one of us struggles with are the things that come out of our mouth before we realize they came out, and not thinking and not giving thought to that. A godly man is heavenly, number four, in his expectation. 
is expectation. Titus 1-2 speaks of the elect living in hope of eternal life. That that's, that's what we think about. We're constantly on that. And Watson says this, such a word picture guy. A godly man casts anchor within the veil. Now, what does that mean? That's an old-fashioned way of saying that you take the anchor of your mind and your soul and you toss it into heaven so that you're anchored at the throne of God. And that's where you are all the time. That's that's what keeps you set and steady and steadfast. And then a heavenly-minded man is heavenly in his conduct. Watson said, He lives as if he had seen the Lord with his bodily eyes. What zeal, sanctity, humility shines forth in his life. A godly person emulates not only the angels, but imitates Christ himself. And he quoted 1 John 2, 6, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. They have to keep in mind that even in Watson's day, which is as far as world history goes, wasn't really that long ago, but compared to today, their lives were very hard. They, they lived a hand-to-mouth existence. There were no, uh, no technology whatsoever. And so comparatively, we live really easy lives. It's very hard for us to picture uh, desperately wishing and hoping for heaven because we have more than we need right now. And, that, and so that's difficult for us. But when you're, you're scraping for an existence and working in a salt mine or in a coal mine, and that's your whole existence, um, then heaven looks really good. And that's not a bad lesson to take. Well, as if that application wasn't enough, Watson gives four more applications to being heavenly-minded, to being a heavenly man. First of all, this is his phrase exactly, God himself sounds the retreat to call us off the world. God himself sounds the retreat to call us off the world. And he takes this from 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And you know, we've talked about the Apostle John enough to know that he's very black and white about everything. If you're in love with everything in this world and nothing of Christ, then you can't be a believer. You can't have it both ways. Doesn't mean we don't enjoy the things in the world. We've always said that a Christian has more fun than anybody because what's the worst thing that can happen to you here? Worst thing that can happen is you do the golf ball toss, dive off the cliff to go for it, and then you're in heaven, and that's it. Second application he gives, consider how much below a Christian it is to be earthly-minded. I love that. Consider how much below a Christian it is to be earthly-minded. And Watson says this, we laugh sometimes at children when we see them busying themselves with their toys when in the meantime we do the same thing. Boy, that's before you could have a a jet ski. Uh, You know, what toys was he talking about? A big wagon wheel you roll down the wheel? I don't know what they had. But uh, I imagine in every generation men were enamored with their toys. Third application, consider what a poor contemptible thing the world is. Consider what a poor, contemptible thing the world is. 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And um, Watson said that the world is contemptible, and if you love it, it's like loving a corpse. It's like having a family member that you love who has died and leaving them in the bedroom for years at a time. His last application, number four, consider what a glorious place heaven is. Consider what a glorious place heaven is. Speaking of those of great faith in Christ, Hebrews eleven sixteen says, But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them 
a city. So, wonderful application to be a heavenly man. That's very hard in our culture. And that is so counter-American Christianity. Second, second picture of a godly man is a patient man. A patient man. You've read the story of Job. He was a man who suffered greatly. He had to confront the sovereignty of God and how that fit into his suffering, how those two came together. But do you remember what Job came to be known for in New Testament times? What he was famous for is said in James 5.11, Behold, you have heard those who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness, sometimes translated patience, of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so Watson presents another list, this time just two items. But it's absolutely comprehensive. The list is when we must be patient. And he believes there's only two times we have to be patient, which sounds easy, but it's not. The first time we have to be patient is be patient in waiting. Be patient in waiting. Now, that seems kind of redundant. Well, if I'm waiting, doesn't that mean I'm being patient? No, you can wait with anxiety or you can wait with patience. Because you're not given the choice. I and mean, when you're waiting, nobody waits on purpose. So when you're waiting, you have the choice to, to wait with anxiousness and difficulty or with peacefulness. Psalm 130, verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Meaning that, that waiting for the Lord is the one thing I've really set my heart on doing. Every one of you in some area of your life is waiting on the Lord right now. There's something you're waiting for. And so the, the choice is, well, how am I going to do that? Uh, for me personally, I don't look, like to look back on a time of waiting and realize that I did it with, with a real anxious, anxious heart and a real sense of angst. I don't like to look back on that. I want to look back and say I was thankful for that time because the Lord helped me walk through it. Watson said this about be patient in waiting. Did not God wait for us and cannot we wait for him? A godly man is content to await God's leisure. That is a great Puritan phrase, God's leisure, meaning God will do things when he feels like it. And that's what we wait for, and his timing is always perfect. So the first comprehensive list, in the comprehensive list of when we wait, be patient in waiting, and the only really other time is patience in bearing trials. Patience in bearing trials. And he divides this I think really ingeniously into two forms. Listen carefully. First, we're patient, he says, in regard to man when we bear injuries without revenging. He calls it revenging. We would say avenging. That in other words, when we feel wronged by another human being, especially by another believer, we're patient because we don't do something back to them. And multiple times in the New Testament, we're told, don't take vengeance. Don't pay back evil for evil. Romans 12 um, don't avenge one another, First Thessalonians 5. Be patient in regard to man. The other ingenious way to bear trial is be patient in regard to God when we bear his hand without repining. That's an old-fashioned word that means without complaining, without expressing discontent, without griping to the Lord. I'm sick and tired of this. I, just, I don't want this anymore. That we're patient in regard to that. So we're, we're patient with men, patient with God. Now, it sounds kind of weird to say we're patient with God. My experience in my life has been when I'm impatient with the Lord, he tends to just extend out whatever I'm waiting on. You know, I was about to finish this up, but I think we'll give it another five years. See how that goes. Because for him, 10 years is nothing. 
You know, if he needs to make you wait until eternity for something, he doesn't care. Um, So it's to our benefit to be patient and waiting. Either way, we bear with what Watson calls, quote, cheerful submission. Now, that's a peaceful way to live, is just being cheerfully submissive to whatever comes to you. And then he says this. This is so, this is almost cute. The great quarrel, the great argument between God and us is whose will will stand in the end? My will or his? That's the argument. So he gives us three applications, three things which battle against patience. Three things that battle against patience. First one, disquiet of spirit. Disquiet of spirit. He says, quote, when the soul is discomposed, another kind of old-fashioned word, and pulled off the hinges in so much that it is unfit for holy duties. In other words, if you're impatient with the Lord, you start, being, uh, you start misbehaving and you're not fit to worship. You're not fit to, to worship the Lord because you're mad at him, essentially, by impatience. Disquiet of spirit. Similarly, he says what battles against patience is discontent. Discontent. Watson calls this, quote, a sullen, dogged mood. Every one of you know what that means. Monday morning, a sullen, dogged mood. You wake up and that's the fight you have. Um, do, I, do I go about my day with, with a contented spirit or a discontented spirit? And he says, discontent is the daughter of pride. Anytime we're not content, that's really a prideful action. Then the last, the third thing which battles against patience, self-vindication. Self-vindication, that when a man justifies himself, that he doesn't deserve what he suffers. He's ready to accuse God of unrighteousness. A godly man, though, he says, quote, subscribes to God's wisdom and submits to his will. This was essentially Job's problem. He didn't do anything to deserve what happened to him in Job chapter 1 and 2. But throughout the course of his trial, he did come to the point of believing that he had the right to take God to court, as it were. And that's when God gives this big speech and says, if you're big enough to catch a dinosaur, if you're big enough to grab a dragon, then you can take me to court. And he, he gives all these things. If you can figure out where, where the snow comes from, if you can tell me where the, the deer have their babies, if you can tell me how everything on earth works, if you can tell me how I designed the, the equator, if you can tell me how I hung the stars and the, and the earth, then you can take me to court. So there's a real sense in which self-vindication is just another aspect of pride. So, patience. Here's a third picture of a godly man. A man who does not indulge himself in sin. A man who does not indulge himself in sin. We've talked about sin a lot. He looks at it from many different angles. And Watson asks this question. What is it to indulge in sin? What does that mean? And he answers, quote... As a fond parent humors his child and lets him have what he wants, so it is to indulge sin by humoring yourself, by saying, this is okay. He gives a second answer, to indulge sin is to commit it with delight. And he goes on to say that to, for a believer to indulge themselves in sin is basically to say, for just a minute, I think I'd like to act like an unbeliever. I think I just want to go back to those days. 2 Thessalonians 2.12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. And here's the, here's the definition of an unbeliever. But they had pleasure in unrighteousness. That there's a, there's a pleasure in it. We all sin, but the mark of a godly man is that we're not indulging in it. 
that we're not, we're not liking it. We're not, we're, we may taste it, but we're not going back for seconds, thirds, and fourths. Then he makes a statement of principle and then gives another ingenious illustration. Here's his statement of principle. A godly man does not indulge sin, and here's his principle, though sin is in him, he is troubled at it and would gladly get rid of it. That's the principle. And here's his illustration. This is worth quoting exactly. There is as much difference between sin in the wicked and godly as between poison being in a serpent and in a man. Poison in a serpent is in its natural place and is delightful, but poison in a man's body is offensive and he uses antidotes to expel it. Uh, That's brilliant. The sin as poison. In a snake, it's natural. In a man, it's unnatural. In an unbeliever, sin is natural. In a believer, it's unnatural. And he says that the godly man enters his protest against sin. It's the idea of I take my sin to court every day and I sue sin and I sue to win. He hates the sin that he commits. And Watson gives, surprisingly, another list. Four types of sin the godly man will not indulge. These are going to strike at the heart of every one of us. The first type of sin the godly man will not indulge, secret sins. Secret sins. He gives the example in Genesis 31 about Rachel. That Rachel didn't care uh, openly. She didn't, she didn't carry openly the household idols that she stole from her father, but she sat on them and she hid them and she lied about them. Psalm 44, verse 21, but he knows the secrets of the heart. He knows everything. A godly man knows that in some sense, secret sins are worse than others because they not only reveal sin, but they reveal the fact that you're dishonest about it. The secret sin. There's also a, a dishonesty with yourself by deceiving yourself that if people don't know, then God doesn't know. It's like the old adage that if I can eat three pieces of cake and my wife doesn't see me, the calories don't count somehow. That's not true. Secrecy doesn't make it any better. In fact, it makes it worse. Second type of sin the godly man will not indulge, gainful sins. Gainful sins, he calls them. The use of injustice and cheating and justifying your actions to get ahead, to gain power and position or money. I I read a statistic recently that one of the top five reasons pastors are thrown out of the ministry is for cheating on their taxes. And they're, they're, they're gaining... Uh, secretly, and they're doing so to, to get something, uh, which is even worse because you're cheating with money that was given to you by the church. Uh, that's even worse. Third type of sin the godly man will not indulge, a beloved sin. A beloved sin. Watson calls this the sin the heart is most fond of, and he calls it the king sin. The king sin, and he says, the godly man fights this king to the death. Watson said, if we're to have peace in our souls, we must maintain war against our beloved sin and never leave off till it is subdued. Now, obviously, that's a lifetime, a lifetime pursuit. His fourth type, and this is the one that was most interesting to me, the sins which the world counts lesser. The sins which the world counts lesser. Sins of omission, such as becoming more and more prayerless, Watson said, a godly man would as soon live without food as without prayer. 
sins of idle words which are not measured, the words spoken in informal or private context, that a private conversation you have with somebody, if, you're, if you would be ashamed of that conversation to be public, um, other than if you're being judicious about something, if you would be ashamed of that conversation, then that's an idle word. And then words of slander and gossip spoken rashly. And instead, he says, the godly man judges himself for his own sins, but is charitable and tender of the good name of all others. Wonderful words of wisdom there. We don't indulge sin. Fourth picture of a godly man, he is good in his relationships. He's good in his relationships. We've talked about this a lot. I'll do this one fairly quickly. But he divides it into some categories. That he's good as a husband. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is one of the things I love about the Puritans. They took their marriages deadly seriously. Their marriages were the, the outflow of their love for Christ. His illustration for the closeness of marriage, it's like a vine that has twisted around a tree. There's a oneness there. There's a unity there. And he says love is the best diamond in the wedding ring. He says that unkindness from a Christian husband is shameful and betrays his faith that you're acting like a heathen, that the unkind husband acts like the unbeliever. And he gives this long list of how to be good as a husband. I'm not going to take a lot of time on it. He says a good husband covers sin, avoids occasions of strife. He uses sweet, endearing expressions with good and godly counsel by love tokens, meaning gifts, by encouraging her strengths, by mutual prayer, and by spending time with her regularly. We could learn much from the Puritans about being husbands. He says this, The captain who leaves his ship and abandons it entirely to the merciless waves declares that he does not value it or reckon there is any treasure in it. So we're the captain of the ship of our marriage and we, we steer it well. We're good as a husband. We're also good as fathers, as a godly man. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And Watson uses a phrase, I love how English has changed over time. A father must drop holy instruction into his children. I just picture these little birds with their mouths open going around and dropping food in their mouths, but that's really a, an accurate picture. And he uses Abraham as an example. And I had never seen this before. I've read this passage a thousand times. But the Abraham was a man who instructed his household. Genesis 18, 19, God said, For I have chosen him that he may command his children. What is that? That's to instruct them and to, to um, drop holy instruction into their mouths. A godly father prays for his children. He gives the illustration of a woman named Monica who prayed intently for her son um, who finally got saved as a young adult and he would turn out to be Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of all time in the Christian church. And someone told her, quote, it was impossible that a son of so many prayers and tears should perish. We pray for our children and then the godly father gives discipline and I love this, Uh, This is classic Puritan. Watson says, the rod beats out the dust and moth of sin. It's like you get this picture of hanging a rug over a clothesline and just boom, and all the dust is out. That's what we do with kids, and that is not popular today, especially in the state of California. Where I'm from in Texas, I mean, in the middle of a grocery store, nobody cares. Bam, you know, the kid gets it, and the whole store goes, that's right, go after him. Here, you get sued and thrown in the jail for it, so you have to be more judicious. He's good as a, as a husband, good as a father. Godly man is good as a master. 
good as a master. A godly man sets the spiritual tone in his family as a master. Joshua 24, 15, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The man of the house made the decision. My family is serving the Lord. Uh, This isn't a voting system. If you live in my house, we're serving Christ. A godly man provides necessities and takes care of those in his care. That you work, you do whatever it takes to care for, for those under your charge. That a godly man sets a good example for those who serve under him. That his virtuous life is a, is a mirror for the servants in his family to dress themselves by. Uh, to this day, the example of a godly master that I take is a, is a man I worked for many years ago. Uh, he was an orthodontist. He was, a, he was a Christian man, and I never saw anybody treat his employees like children. And I don't mean that in the sense of talking down to them. I mean in the sense of caring for them. Um, there, he used a bonus system. And there were very, very many paychecks where my paycheck was smaller than my bonus because he wanted to care for people. He did not live extravagantly personally. He would counsel with you. He would pray with you. I mean, he believed that those in his charge were, that he was responsible for them. And he took that really seriously. I'd never forgotten that example. And it's no wonder that he's a very effective elder in the church that he uh, attends now. And finally, a godly man is good as a servant. So good as a husband, a father, a master, and as a servant. Godly man can be in charge or he can, he can take orders. He can do both. Colossians 3.22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And he gives four qualities of a good servant. And you guys have heard me talk about this before, before I do the four qualities. One of the things that gets under my skin the most is when I see a believer in Christ who is a lazy employee. That is just so contrary to what we believe. Um, Jesus worked for his dad for probably 15 years. And I guarantee you, he was not a lazy employee. Jesus had calluses. He had cuts. He had bruises. He worked hard. Um, he, was, he was a godly employee. Four qualities of a good servant. He's diligent. He's diligent. Watson used Abraham's servant as an example, the one who went and searched for a wife for Isaac. If you read about that in Genesis 24, he was diligent. He was determined. He was prayerful. He poured his whole heart into being a servant, the best one he could be. Second quality is he's cheerful. And Watson says this, servants must be free willers. Now, that's not free will in the idea of of doctrine. It means I'm free of a will of my own. I don't have a will of my own. He used the example of the centurion who told Jesus in Luke 7, 8, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. That it, cheerful means I don't have a will of my own. I don't, I don't have to have things my own way. Third quality of a good servant, he's faithful. He's loyal to his master by keeping his reputation good, not stealing from him. I, I'll never forget something my dad told me, even as a kid. He said, if you want to be successful in anything, make the guy above you look really good. Always make him look good. Do everything you can to make him successful. And as he's successful, he'll take you with him. I thought that was fabulous advice. He's diligent, cheerful, faithful, and finally the quality of a good servant is silence. Silence, meaning not complaining, not talking back, not grumbling. Learning these two wonderful words, yes, sir. Or these wonderful words, I'll get it done. These wonderful words, you can count on me and being that guy. 
Uh, my dad was big on work ethic, and I remember him telling me, the people you work with and around will not care what you say, they will care what you do. And they will judge you by your consistency in action and excuses that after three of them, they, they, won't, they won't hear them anymore. All they hear is, here's another one. And this time, if you have a real one, they won't hear it. That's good, that's good advice. Diligent, cheerful, faithful, and silent. Isn't that great? If any of you who have employees, you've probably had an employee that you wish would just be quiet and do their job. That's how we ought to be as well. Well, one more picture of a godly man. He strives to be an instrument to make others godly. He strives to be an instrument to make others godly. And I'll just spend a moment on this. When Watson uses the term godly, he, is, he means a believer versus being an unbeliever. So in other words, he is evangelistic when he strives to make others godly. Watson said this, he is not content to go to heaven alone, but wants to take others with him. He is always drawing others to embrace Christ. Now, Thomas Watson was a Puritan. He was a Calvinist. He believed in the doctrines of grace. He believed that um, certainly the doctrine of election, that God chooses those who will come to salvation. Keeping that in mind, he said this, there is great effort in the conversion of souls. He talks about making effort in terms of your own godliness, that we don't ever want to convey a sense that the Christian faith is a fraud because we're acting like idiots or, or being um, anything less than filled with integrity, um, that we're, we work hard from a spirit of compassion, that we love the lost, we love those who don't know Christ, and we're, we're desperate for them to know Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.11, the Apostle Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And then the last reason that he is a man who convinces others, a man who wants others to be godly. He does it from a holy zeal for Christ's glory, that the glory of Christ is as dear to him as his own salvation, that the greatest thing we can do to promote the glory of Christ is to tell others about him. Um, Why do we evangelize? Why do we share our faith with others? It's not just to hope that they come into the kingdom. That's not our business. That's God's business. But every time we share our faith, every time we tell someone else the name of Christ, that I am a follower of Christ, that gives him glory. That gives him honor. Um, What, you know, you guys are, you guys are are Americans. I was trying to think Darren's not here so I can say that. Um, You guys are Americans. How does it make you feel when people who live in America talk about how terrible our country is and when they burn flags and when they talk about the rottenness of America? That doesn't sit right. That's like a Christian who won't talk about Christ. He's disloyal. So he has a holy zeal for Christ's glory, and we give him glory by telling others about him. Watson says this, It is a glory to Christ when multitudes are born to him. Every star adds luster to the sky. Every convert is a member added to Christ's body and a jewel adorning his crown. And the more there are saved, the more Christ is exalted. So he's a heavenly man, a patient man. He doesn't indulge in sin. He's good in his relationships. He strives to be an instrument to make others godly. Let me just finish this portion by telling you a little bit about Watson. When the Act of Uniformity was passed in 1662, he was thrown out of his church. He was pastoring the big church. And he continued to preach. He started a church first in the woods, then it went to a home, and finally settled into a barn. And he preached in a barn Wherever he had the opportunity, in 1666, the same year that this book came out, 
After the Great Fire of London, Watson then prepared a large room for public worship, and anyone wishing to attend could. The Fire of London basically um, made it a little bit more open for Puritans to be able to preach because everybody was concerned with rebuilding London instead of uh, policing the Puritans. Watson eventually obtained a license for a place called Crosby Hall, and he preached there for three years before a guy named Stephen Charnock. He's one of the most famous Puritans ever. You should read the theology of Stephen Charnock. They ministered together until Charnock's death. And I, I think this is, uh, this is classic. Watson kept working, kept preaching, kept writing. And in 1686, he died suddenly while in his closet that he used for prayer. He was in private prayer with the Lord. And imagine that, talking to the Lord in prayer and then blinking your eye and then talking to him in person. He said, Lord, what are you doing here? No, it's you who are here. And I, 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 that's, that's how I want to die. I want to die in prayer. Either that or in the pulpit, but that'd be kind of weird for you guys. Uh, <laughs> uh, do we close in prayer? Or what do we do here? Yeah. So here's what I want to do for a few minutes. I want to just open it up to a little discussion and... Um, Try to ask pointed questions that, that we can that, that are really related to pictures of godliness, uh, not just things in general. Uh, Dave Dahl had already requested one question, so I'm going to let him go first, and we'll do that for about 15 minutes, and then we'll have a small prayer time. Well, this is an application question in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 13, in verse five, Paul writes, "Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, for do you not realize." This about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Twice he says, test, test yourselves and fail to meet the test. My question is, in application, real world, what's a test look like? What's a test? Well, ultimately, you know, Romans eight says that the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. So nobody else can tell me I'm saved except on, by, the, by virtue of seeing the fruit in my life over a course of many years. And when somebody tells me I just came to faith in Christ, I always say, that's great, we'll see. Because I, I, I don't know, I haven't seen any fruit. But as far as examining yourself, there are some scriptural ways to do that. And I think the key is Romans 8. The key is that the Spirit, of, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we're, we're children of God. So what... What is inside me? What is my affection? What do I love? And there's some tests you can do from Scripture. For example, um, in 1 John, uh, I, at first I counted 9, then 12. I'm up to about 25 times. And in 1 John, if you are a believer in Christ, you love other believers. You're not repelled by them. You're attracted to them. You need to be with them. Uh, when somebody comes to me and says, I, I, I don't sense a need to be with the body of Christ, I'm pretty open at this stage of my ministry. I just say, then you're probably not saved. Because a saved person loves other believers. You love this. And you, you sense a need for that. Um, a saved person loves the word of God. There's a hunger. There's a, there's a thirst after the word of God. There is um, a yearning. Uh, Psalm 42, I thirst for the Lord as a deer pants for water. Um, so you, you love God's people. You love God's word. Um, you're convicted of your own sin. That as you sin, you're not constantly making excuses. You sense that you have displeased the Lord and that that, that doesn't sit right with you. Now, it's possible to be an unbeliever and have your sin not sit right with you too. What that means is that you need to repent and come to faith in Christ. 
But as a believer, your, your sin bothers you. I mean, we talked about that from every different angle possible with Watson. It, it just, it bothers you. You, 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 you get upset at yourself. Um, not in the sense of condemning judicially, but you're upset that you failed in an area that, that you should have down by now. And honestly, there should be some areas that you get down. There should be a time in your life when you know which bullets to load in the, in the spiritual warfare gun to deal with lust, to deal with greed. That you know, I've got to get these bullets, bam, 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 it's dead. Now, I might have to load up every day, but I know where the bullets are. So you love, you love God's people, you love God's word, um, you hate your sin. Uh, I, I think reading a book like, uh, like Watson's, when you get through it, if you're not in tears and just, just weeping before the Lord, if you're kind of like, ah, that was okay, you got to check your spiritual pulse. Um, that, that godly people love godly things. I love uh, 1 Corinthians 2, I think it's verse 14, that talks about that the apostles taught, and the word of God through the apostles teaches spiritual things to those who are spiritual. That if you don't know the Lord, if the Holy Spirit hasn't indwelt you, then, then the things we're talking about here, kind of like, these guys are nuts. They drive all the way up in the mountain to sit at an uncomfortable table and chair and listen to a guy talk all afternoon when we could be out there shooting something. Spiritual people love spiritual things. So I think if you put all those together, um, you know, I've done a lot of counseling, and ultimately when, when somebody, when I, I tell them, here's a sin you're committing, you need to turn from it. And they say, no, 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 no. Eventually, we're going to have a conversation, then you're not in Christ. Because a Christian wants to turn from sin. So there, there's a desire to do that. Um, Dr. Dwight Pentecost was always famous at, at Dallas Seminary um, for saying in his prayers, you know, Lord, forgive me, for I am... I am teaching a class of dirty young men as a dirty old man. He always knew that he was that he was a sinner. So, does that help a little? Good question. Yes, sir, Alfredo. Well, now, Luke six twenty-seven. It says, "But I say unto you, who hear, love your enemies and do good." Could that be another check mark for us? Absolutely. Yeah, a, a guy who thinks he's okay avenging avenging sin against him uh, probably isn't a believer because a, a believer takes himself off the judge's bench and allows God to be the judge. That when I'm wronged, um, then God's going to be the judge. That doesn't mean that within the confines of the law, I can't, um, I, I can't get what is duly rightly mine. If somebody comes and steals everything in my house and a guy is arrested, absolutely, he should be prosecuted within the law. But I don't go down to the county jail and blow his head off either. I don't avenge myself because that's not what believers do. Uh, really, the, the tendency to, to be vengeful is a pretty key sign that somebody's not a believer. So, good question. Other questions related to, to what we talked about here? Yeah, Will. That question, he has to say a question. Like, what, I mean, like, what if he's constantly struggling with the fact that I mean, the Lord clearly says, don't rejoice when you're in it. I mean, when the Lord, sometimes the Lord avenges us. I mean, we, I mean, mm-hmm. we don't take minutes, but then the Lord avenges us. And like, in, in our heart, we rejoice. And sometimes I, I have to cru- crucify myself. I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm going to love to see Hillary Clinton tossed in the lake. I think, mm-hmm. all these, I think of people who, I mean, proudly defend the right to kill unborn children. Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
but the Lord doesn't take pleasure in the just judgments of wicked. I mean, isn't having a vengeful do I mean? Like That's a yeah. Will you just ask the like three hundred million dollar theological question? Because it's it's yes, no, both, and okay. Um, on the one hand, uh, on the one hand, um, Bible says that God desires that all men will be saved. Is that what's actually going to happen? No. So does that mean God can't make His desires come to pass? No. It just means He is a compassionate, loving God. For God so loved the world. At first, we define the world as everybody on the globe. But as we get closer in and microscope into the, to the word of God, the world is defined as all those who will come to faith in Christ. That's who God loves. You can't say that if somebody's being tossed into the lake of fire, God's yelling one last, but I love you. He's not doing that. We don't have the right to be thrilled at the, at the demise of others because we're too sinful to take that mantle on. However... There will be a day that we are perfected in glory. And I think about the tribulation martyrs of Revelation chapter 6. And what are they saying? Yeah. How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? Yeah. So right now we can't handle that. And, and I, I think we can spend our time better. Um, but uh, th- there is a sense in which it is a godly desire. Uh, if I can put it this way, there are as many imprecatory prayers in the Psalms as there are praises and thanksgivings. I mean, you're reading the same psalm. David says, you know, I love you, Lord. You are my God, my strength and salvation. Please crush your enemies to dust. All in the same breath. So there's a sense in which that's a righteous thing to do. But I would add, and thank you that while I was still your enemy, you didn't crush me to dust. But but Romans chapter 5, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. So there's a real sense of gratitude there that we could have been treated as God's enemy because we were born as enemies. And we were born shaking our fists at God. So, good question, Will. And ask a powerful dynamite theology question there. Let's do one more, and then we're going to have a short time of prayer. Last night, you picked up the word serious, the period of more serious, mm-hmm. and then simplicity. Yeah. And I just, uh, I'm older, but including myself, uh, I see a creeping curse of not being serious today. Uh, Fun. Yeah. Games, uh, uh, I have a book called The Death of the Adult. Uh, even the world is recognizing that we aren't being serious in being adults. Yep. And, uh, I, now, if you ask a Puritan, they would say, we have more fun than anybody. I mean, they would get together and they would do exactly what we did here, not with golf balls, but with, you know, whatever. They, they would have fun. They would have picnics together they would do all kinds of things little little county fairs i mean they uh, the, the county fair was like the, the puritans thing in england i mean they they loved those things they had more fun than anybody but not to the exclusion of worship um i can't remember who it was that said that in our culture today we are amusing ourselves to death that um now you know it used to be it used to be that uh, you told somebody you're wasting time if you go to the movies on Friday night. Now, there are uh, millennials in that generation who are getting up in the morning and watching two movies before they go to work. And there's this, there's this addiction to entertainment. Um, easy way to find out if you're addicted to entertainment, just stop it. And if you're going, ah, like that, <laughs> then you're, you're addicted. It is addictive It's because it's passive. Um, and, of course, we see that in the church today. I mean, oh, my goodness, there's a church in town, Discovery Church. Real, 
relevant relationships. I would like to go spray paint on their sign, fraudulent. Worship is not something fun that we go do while we sip our latte and have a great time and hear a rock concert. That's not worship. It is to come crawling, thankfully, before a holy God. Um, I, I wish, honestly, people would think we were totally weird, but I wish we had a building big enough that once in a while we could take the chairs out and just put some little knee pillows where we could kneel together before the Lord. And if we did that now, we've got some older folks, we couldn't get them back up and that'd be tough. Um, but I'll never forget my grandfather. Both my grandfathers were pastors. Grandfather on one side, pastor of the church. And I don't know if you guys have ever been in churches that have, that have kneelers on the back of the pews. Or you get little hinges and you, you pull that thing down and all the women in the church embroider little things, little pads on there. And when it's time for prayer, everybody's on their knees. I never forgot that. Never forgot that. And I remember asking my grandmother why we do that. And she said, because God is big. And, and he, deserves, he deserves that. So you're right. There is a lack of seriousness. Um, that how do, we, how do we fight that? You can't fight that in the world, but you can fight it in your own family. You can spend as much time talking about the Lord as you do having fun and let the fun be fun when it's supposed to be, but spend time together. You know, in our family, the most precious times we have is when we gather in our living room. And that, that's, that's precious. And we, we get out our hymnals and we sing songs to the Lord and we talk about what the Lord is doing. And, um, you know, there's no prescribed, you have to do that every day or anything, but those are precious times. So, all right, let's, let's do this. Um, just real briefly, I'm just going to pick on a few guys um, to pray. I, I wish we had time to really gather together, but unfortunately time doesn't allow us and we want to uh, honor your time and have time to clean up a little bit here. Um, so I'm going to just go down and we're going to have four guys pray specifically um, about what we've talked about. And you guys pray to yourselves as well, not pray to yourselves, but pray in your own heart. That'd be all idolaters here. But this is, this is the final blow with a hammer to nail this thing down. So uh, I'm just going to, Daryl, would you pray over here? And then Alfredo, would you pray for us over here? And um, Tim, would you pray for us over here? And then Floyd, would you close us out? You got four minutes each. All right, let's go to the Lord and pray.
just the young men, but the older men also, who have and struggle. We pray that you would be with us and we can help counsel, bring us together, Lord. Help us to really be committed to dealing with sin in our lives because life is a test of affects relationships all around the So I pray for everyone who can be able to deal with that openly and honestly before we do. Thank you so much for what we've heard of you. Just help us to be able to remember just a third of what we've been told. In Jesus' name. Father,
pray with one another. We thank you for that. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Father, just thank you for this weekend. We, I just pray that we would, uh, we would have a fire of love for you, for your word, and for the lost as we leave this mountain. These things that you pray in Christ's name. Dear Lord, we humbly and thanksgiving, especially for this weekend that more than we've been fed physically, we've been fed even more so spiritually. So often our brothers in Christ aren't being fed at the churches. They're not being mature in the faith. Here at this church and other churches, so few of them, they are feeding. And we can grow, we can mature, and we can be about your business because you're faithful to give your word to us so that amongst us we support and encourage one another to be more like you, which is godly man. Christ was the godly man. And so as we strive to be more like Christ, we appreciate even this difficult time because the more difficult it is, the more the gain. We've learned much more. Especially when it hurts in the family. But we pray that this is only the start. That we grow more. We come closer to you. Not only our brothers and our families know us as men of God, but the world knows us by not just our word, but our deed, our actions, our applications of your service that you have given to us that your strength has made us faithful of. Bless your name, Lord. Amen and amen. Amen. Right now, for every one of you, there's something that we talked about. In your mind, in your heart, you're saying, I need to do something about that. you got a little bitty window. As you're going down the mountain, you're still motivated. In a week, you're going to go, I need to add that to a list. In a month, it's gone. Make a plan today, this weekend, um, to, to make that little change, whatever that is. Uh, Grant, you want to organize our close out? What else do you Where's Chad? Oh, right there. I'll let you guys... Chad, you just what you want to do.